1878, Floyd Hatfield had a pig. And this poor pig had a little notch of its ear bitten out by another pig, or so Hatfield claimed. The problem is that there was a clan across the Tug Fork River um, in West Virginia, and they were known as the McCoys. And the way the McCoys knew which pigs were theirs is that they notched their pigs' ears. And so that caused a problem. One day, Randolph McCoy noticed a notched ear in a pig belonging to Floyd Hatfield and accused him of swine theft, which he, of course, denied. And this went back and forth and elevated to the point that it got to a court case. The problem is that uh, now Hatfield and McCoy are in this court case, and the, the magistrate was the Honorable Anderson Hatfield. And so uh, there was immediately uh, this perceived bias. So the Hatfield was very wise. He um, based his ruling almost entirely on the testimony of one Bill Staten, who was called as a witness because he was related to both families through marriage. Um, and they thought the case was closed. But then Bill Staten died. Uh, he was killed, supposedly in self-defense, by the McCoy brothers. So Hatfield ruled in favor of the Hatfields because of the testimony of Staten, and Staten was killed by the McCoys. And that started what now is a, uh, a dinner theater in Gatlinburg, um, the famous feud between the McCoys and the Hatfields. Around that time, uh, Rosanna McCoy was courting Jason, jo Johnson Hatfield, and uh, the McCoys arrested the young man for bootlegging, supposedly. The Hatfields then rescued Johnson by force. Johnson Hatfield abandoned his pregnant Rosanna McCoy and married her cousin. Uh, Rosanna's brothers killed one of the Hatfields, I can never figure out which one. Uh, the Hatfields then hunted down three McCoy brothers and killed them. The Hatfields were then arrested, but mysteriously got away with no punishment. So the McCoys used political connections to reinstate the charges, and the Hatfields burnt down a McCoy cabin to flush out Randolph McCoy, and during that time, two McCoy children were killed, um, and eight Hatfields were arrested. One of them ended up being executed. Uh, this blood feud goes on and on and on and rages on bitterly for the next 12 years, uh, leave, well, next several decades, leaving 12 lives from both families taken. Many were injured. Um, at one point, the governors of West Virginia and Kentucky were involved, and there was a fight that was developing between the two states that almost led to a civil war between those two states. Um, and eventually, this went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court that had to get involved in an extradition dispute. And at any point, if you ask any of them what were they fighting for, I doubt they would say it was a pig. What were they fighting for? What is it that people fight for? Often, the thing that starts the chain of events is completely forgotten, and it all just boils down to, well, now we're fighting, so we're going to keep fighting until there's no one left to fight. And that's what we see in our text this evening. Turn your Bibles to Judges, the days that the judges ruled Israel, chapter 20. And uh, if you're catching us now towards the end of the book of Judges, you've, you've missed the, the downward spiral, but you're in time to get the gist of the message. Um, the book of Judges is uh, presented during a time of Israel's history when there was no king in Israel, there was no authority of the state, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of the theme of Judges, desperate times call for desperate measures. Everyone's doing what they think is best, but they are completely untethered from the word of God and God's will. 
Last week, we saw the lowest point in Israel's history so far. Uh, it was the, the shock therapy for essential society is what we called it. And it was a, a, the story of Judges 19 is that a Levite, a random unnamed Levite, has a concubine, which is like a mistress. He takes this mistress. Um, he doesn't want to stay. Well, he, it's a long story. Go read it. But uh, he doesn't want to stay with foreigners. He wants to stay in the safety of Israelites. So he goes to the town of Gibeah. Instead of getting safety there, uh, he ends up being attacked by the people. He, he finds one old man who's not from Gibeah that'll look after him. But the men of Gibeah, and this is the important part you need to know, the men of Gibeah came to attack him, and uh, he and his host come up with this brilliant idea that they think is way better than being attacked themselves. They send their woman out to be attacked. And so he sends his concubine out, the other man sends his daughter out, and the story then follows what happens to her. Uh, she is killed violently, um, and he takes her body and dismembers it into 12 pieces and then sends it all over one piece to each of the tribes with a message that this is what things have come to. This is the low point in our history. We need to do something about it. So that's kind of where we found, found ourselves last week. And tonight we're going to see two common mistakes that people make when they don't know God's will. And we've seen lots of mistakes people are making from sacrificing um, their daughter like Jephthah uh, to, I mean, just the book of Judges, right? When people don't know God's will. Now we're going to look at two common mistakes people make when they don't know God's will. One is they side with the sinner. And two, they respond without restraint. We'll see both of those unfold here. So let's read chapter 20, the first part of it. Um, and basically, just the, the first few verses is just telling that, uh, verse 1 says, All the people of Israel came out from Dan in the north, northernmost um, place, to Beersheba in the south, the southernmost place, including the land of Gilead. So these are people on the east side of the Jordan. So the whole point here is that just everybody came from all over, and they met as one man united to Yahweh at Mizpah. Um, and now you can... Drop your eyes down to verse uh, 7, because what happens there is the Levite recaps chapter 19, which I just did for you, um, and he tells them what happened. Verse 7, Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, there's that phrase again, the unity, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take 10 men of 100 throughout all the tribes of Israel and 100 of 1,000 and 1,000 of 10,000 to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah, in other words, give revenge, um, to Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they've committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. There it is again. And the tribes of Israel sent men through the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what evil is this that's taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers and the people of Israel. So we'll stop there for now. The woman is a, a, a victim of an horrendous crime. Uh, that was committed. This is the worst crime that's been committed in Israel so far. It is very reminiscent, even in the language that the narrator used, as we saw last week, of the crimes of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, pagan cities which God completely wiped out because of their homosexual immorality. And here we have something just as bad, 
just uh, as bad, but in Israel. And so Israel wants to do something about this. And this is God's will that this evil is purged, but these people don't actually know what God's will is. And so they're, they're just going to, at first, try to figure it out themselves. But as you saw, the phrase, they got together as one man, keeps being united. This is important because at this point in the story, Israel has been very, very scattered. There's no king in Israel. There's no centralized government. But now things are starting to move towards them realizing, the tribes realizing, we need somebody to rule over all of us. We need to get together. When we get together, we can stop these things happening. When everyone's separate and doing what's on their, uh, right in their own eyes, there's chaos. So remember that the whole point of the book of Judges is to get us ready for the book of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that now God's um, people will be ruled by a king. So this woman gets sacrificed to save the cowardly skin of her protector, um, and then her lifeless corpse becomes a symbol of the division of Israel. And the effect was instant. I mean, it worked. We saw last week this was a shock therapy for essential society, and the shock therapy worked. And, and everybody comes together as one man, and for the first time, the tribes are united, the first time since the conquest. You could say desperate times have called for desperate, desperate measures, and now they realize what a desperate state their nation is in. At this point, you might say, so it, is it right what the Levite did? No, absolutely not. You never look at anything in the book of Judges and think, is that right? The answer is nine times out of ten, no, that wasn't right. <laughs> um, no, it doesn't excuse what he did. Desperate times call for desperate measures, but the end does not justify the means. What he did was wrong, uh, but it shows you the, the level of um, uh, twistedness the society is in that they don't even realize that he also should be punished for what he did, but he doesn't. And, and when he recounts the story, he kind of leaves out that part, that it was really his fault for not protecting her. But everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Now, as terrible as this act was, and as wrong as it was, it was effective in that it did unite the tribes, as I said. Each tribe decides to send a tenth of their fighting men. Every time you read in the passage, those who drew the sword. What that means is not civilians. Um, these are fighting men. And because what's going to happen is the, the attack on Gibeah is not going to be only against the fighting men. It's going to include the civilians. It's a type of terrorism and genocide that we're about to see. And so the, the men who draw the sword come together, and they meet with Benjamin, and they demand justice, and they tell Benjamin, come with us, and we'll go to Gibeah. You hand over the Gibeonites, because remember, Gibeah is in the territory of Benjamin. So it's the Benjamin's, Benjamites' problem. And this is where they make their first mistake. A common mistake that people make even to this day is that they side with the sinner instead of siding with God. If you're, if you're not sure of a, who's right and who's wrong, you always go with God. That's just a rule of thumb in life, right? You always side with God and his right. And, but Benjamin, the tribe, doesn't want to side with the rest of Israel and with what surely they should see is the right thing, that the men of Gibeah get punished for this terrible thing that happened. Um, but they refuse, and so they don't, they don't listen to their brothers of Israel, and they side with the Gibeonites. Um, and look what happens. Verse 13. Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge this evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go to battle against the people of Israel. So now they're going to fight them to defend the Gibeonites. And 
the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, soldiers. Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. So it was a big enough town to have these 700 soldiers there. Um, among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Verse 16 is just put in there in the Bible for all of you handicapped lefties. Um, there's no real relevance to that except that the narrator is pointing out ironies to us. The irony that the protector is the cause of the death of the one he's supposed to be protecting. The irony that the division of this woman's body is what unites the tribes. Um, there's all these little ironies are going to pop out here. And one of them is that, and this is an irony that you would get if you were a Hebrew nerd. Does anybody here know what Benjamin means in Hebrew? Ben Yamin. Bryant, what is it? Exactly. Good. Hebrew nerds rule. Um, son of my right hand. So the tribe of Benjamin is known as the right-handers, and within them there's this elite force of fighters that are left-handers. And there's no relevance to that, except that it's kind of funny, and it's kind of ironic. And that's why it's put in there, that there's this irony happening here. I, I mean, I'm just telling you that because that's what the commentaries all say. I don't actually see what the point of that irony is there. But, but it's just an ironic event happening. Okay, let's keep going. Um, it's verse 17. The men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So you've got 26,700 from Gibeah versus 400,000. So this is not going to be a fair fight. And the Israelites are used to fighting little little groups fighting big groups, but always when Yahweh is on the side of the little group, right? Yahweh is not on the side of the Gibeonites here at all. Um, and yet, look what happens. Verse 18, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God. Well, this is a first. They inquired of God something. Um, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Um, Look at verse 21. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. Verse 22, they get back together. And the people, verse 23, the people of Israel went up and wept before Yahweh until evening. And they inquired of Yahweh, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, go against them. And so Verse 24, they do that again. Verse 25, Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. So at this point, you're like, wait, what is going on here? So these 26,000 guys with their 700 lefties are beating this massive force of 400,000 people, you know, killing tens of thousands, 22,000 on the one day, 18,000 on the next day. They keep losing. So the good people are losing against the bad people, and the bad people are in the minority. Obviously, God is involved here somehow. So this drives the majority, the rest of Israel, to their knees. Um, and they inquire in verse 27. Uh, sorry, verse 26 is important. All the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept and sat before Yahweh and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. And the people inquired of Yahweh for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days, and Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, 
Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And Yahweh said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So just stop there for a moment. What we're seeing here is for the first time since they've entered the land, the whole nation has come together and they're doing something that looks remarkably like the religion they were taught by Moses. Don't just go and inquire of Yahweh, which means pulling the, the short straw and the long straw, the Urim and Thumim um, from the high priest. Don't just figure out, well, should we do it or shouldn't we not do it? Why don't you pray? Weep before the Lord. Ask for his guidance. They fast. They humble themselves. So they lose twice against this little group of people. And then they say, whoa, 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 okay. We can't put our faith in our numbers anymore. We have to put our faith in God. We know that what we're doing is what God wants us to. So why is he not helping us? And they just humble themselves. And at that point, God says, okay, now you can go and I'll, I'll be with you and you will win. Um, so again, there's this unity. There's this coming to God. So after this low point, we're starting to see the nation of Israel realize what, what their problem is and what they need. Um, okay, so let's stop there for now. The Benjamites have a sense of duty. They have a code of loyalty, but their sense of duty is to each other, not to God. And so they side with the sinner. Their clan loyalty overshadows their loyalty to Yahweh and Israel. And this is the point here. Their loyalty is misguided. And sometimes in our lives, we get confused and our loyalty becomes misguided because of our relationships with people. And you might be very close to a person and you feel that your job is to be loyal to them and to defend them no matter what. And, and that's not biblical. It is true that you need to stand up for the, the people that God has given you to look after and, and that you need to side with them, you need to be loyal to them, but not, you never ever say you need to be loyal no matter what. Because if that loyalty pits you against God, you're going to have to pick sides, and then you can't be loyal no matter what. You have to pick with God. And that's a concept that's sometimes difficult for people to get because loyalty is such a good thing. It's so good for husbands and wives to be loyal to each other, for families to be loyal to each other, for uh, countrymen to be loyal to each other, patriotism. All these things can be good things, but not when they cross the line and pit you against God. And so at the moment, this might just sound too philosophical. Let me make it practical for you. What do you do if your grown adult child sins against the Lord? Do you side with them and say, I accept you for who you are and everything you do is okay and everything's going to be wonderful, it doesn't matter? Or do you side with God and the people of God and possibly have to church discipline your own child out of the church? You know, that's where the rubber hits the road. Of course, we need to be loyal to our family, but we need to be more loyal to God and his will. And that sometimes means siding with the people of God against your family. This is something Jesus taught, Luke 12, 51. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. That one's more common. Um, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Like It's very common um, for families to not all get saved at the same time. And so Jesus says, once the gospel goes out, people are going to start siding with him, and other people are going to say, no, 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 that's not what we do in this family. And so what this looks like in reality is situations, and in my ministry I've been exposed to a number of these over the years, where 
I'm thinking of a, a young man who was Buddhist, came in, uh, you know, born into a, a, an Asian family, immigrated to the States from Asia. His whole family was Buddhist. He hears the gospel. He gets saved. And the family says, if you reject our religion, you are no longer part of our family. And I heard him give that testimony at his baptism speech where this young man is crying, and so were all the rest of us, saying, I have no family anymore, but now you are my family. See, this isn't a rebellious kid who hates his parents. This is a, a kid who's trying to be loyal to his parents, but they've made him choose between them and the Lord. And he's making the right choice. I've seen that over and over, and this is what Jesus came to do. Just a little caveat. This does not mean you can disobey your parents, kids. This does not mean that fighting is okay. Jesus is specifically speaking about when the gospel comes in and the unbelievers turn against the believers. The believers are to stay the course, even if there's persecution from their own family. Luke 14, 25, Jesus said, sorry, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. And again, that doesn't mean the Bible's not condoning hatred there. We're told to love even our neighbor and love even our enemies, but this is um, an idiom that was often used. When you choose between two, you're loving one and hating the other. Um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. In other words, I'm choosing one and not the other. And you're going to have to choose. If you, if you choose your father, mother, wife, or children over me, you can't be a disciple. You have to be willing to lose everything in order to follow me, including your closest relationships. So, humans do have a conscience. We do have a code of conduct kind of built in. But it's corrupted by our sin. It's like a compass that's next to a magnet. We think it's, we think it's aiming north, but it's not. It's, it's being interfered with our sin. The whole mechanism is broken. And so we see Paul... In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, there's an interesting little play that happens from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians that sometimes you miss unless you read both epistles in one sitting. Um, Paul rebuked the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 for something very interesting that I know the ladies have done in the ladies' Bible study. There's a man in the church who's committing sexual immorality, and the church was being tolerant and forgiving and loving, is what they were saying. And so they weren't disciplining this man out of the church. And so Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 5 and rebukes them for siding with the sinner. And he says, 1 Corinthians 5.1, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and that kind is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So there's a man that's having an affair with his stepmom. Um, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I'm already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? It's a very harsh thing that's happening in 1 Corinthians 5. Is that Paul saying, you're siding with the sinner instead of siding with God. Don't you know that this guy's sin is going to spread and you're going to have other people sinning against God? What you're doing is not loving. It's boastful. It's arrogant. You think that, well, we're the church of love. Come as you are. Everybody's welcome. No, that's not what the Bible says. You're only welcome if you're repentant of your sin. You're welcome to attend, but you're not welcome to join the group 
and be treated like a brother or sister in Christ and take communion if you're in unrepentant sin, that's going to spread to everybody else. And so he says, no, get together, assemble in the name of the Lord and put him outside the church, hand him over to Satan. Satan is, you know, anywhere outside the church for the destruction of the flesh so that he can be saved. So what, what he's saying is that that action of doing that is the most loving thing to do because that's going to cause him to want to come back and make right with the Lord and that's going to save his soul and that's going to last forever. So the most loving thing you can do for a person is not to condone and tolerate and encourage and overlook their sin. The most loving thing you can do is whatever it takes to get them to make right with God, even if they're related to you. Now, bear this in mind, because I'm also going to later look at 2 Corinthians, where there's a follow-up, but that's the second point in our sermon. So, they seek God's will, the Benjamites do, I mean the uh, Israelites, and he, they, he says, go ahead and do this. Um, one commentator, Daniel Block, sees great irony in these chapters. He says, most ironic of all, this chapter portrays the nation of Israel engaged in a holy war against their own kinsmen with all the passion that they should have displayed in their war against the Canaanites. Israel has discovered who her greatest foe is. She is her own worst enemy. And I'll just sum up what happens next is, well, this is also so ironic and so interesting to me, is if you read how they attack, they use the exact strategy that God revealed to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 when they attacked the town of Ai. So, and I told you all about that then, you can go to Ai, uh, Kiryat el Makatir is the site today, and you can stand there and you can see where all this happened, where there was this valley and this whole army was hiding in the valley, and this little group went and attacked the north-facing gate, and they were chased and they were beaten, and while the force from Ai was running after them, um, they left the city defenseless, and the whole army comes up out of the, the hill, attacks them from behind, goes into the city, and burns the city to the ground and then chases them all the way down to the Shevarim, down to the rock quarry, and kills them all. So this, that happened in Joshua chapter 5. This is now a couple of generations later. Aaron's son's son, Phineas, is the high priest. Um, but some of these people would still know that story. And so for the first time here, we see them actually doing something that was revealed in the Bible, what we call the Bible, the, the, the record of what happened in Joshua. And they use the exact same strategy, and it works. So they do this little force, and the people of Gideon beat them, and they're like, oh, we're beating them, chase them out. And they chase them, and then the other people go, and they burn down the city, and when they see the column of smoke, they realize what's happened, and there's this big fight, and they, they wipe them out. This brings us to our second point. The first mistake people make is they side with the sinner. The second one is that they respond without restraint. They go too far. So look at verse 44. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. Remember, there were only 26,000 to begin with. All of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down on the highways as they were running. And they were pursued hard to Gidim. And 2,000 men were struck down. So let's do some math there. We started off with 26,000, 18,000 fall, 5,000 fall, 2,000 fall. We've got 1,000 left. Verse 46. So all 
who fell that day of Benjamin were, oh, there, the math's done, nuts. 25,000, there you go. <laughs> I thought I was being so clever with my arithmetic. Um, verse 46, the 25,000 men of the, who drew the sword, all of them men of valor, but 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness of the Rock of Ramon and remained at the Rock of Ramon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts, and all they found, and all the towns, uh, uh, that they found they set on fire. Now, I just want to quickly correct a little something or tweak a little something there. Um, that phrase there, the city, men and beasts, I don't think that's a, the best translation because as we'll see from the context, it wasn't just men. Um, the word man in the Hebrew is, can also mean uh, people, just like we do in English. You know, like a man's best friend means a human's best friend. It's a dog. Um, so in that mankind, uh, you know, man and the animals, it's that kind of thing. So what's actually been said here is that the city, the people, and even the animals, everyone that they found, they killed, and they burnt all the cities. And that becomes very important because if you miss that detail there, then the rest of the story doesn't make sense because you're like, why are there no women? Because when you come back next week, you're going to see there's a whole chapter about there's no one to marry the leftover Benjamites. We need 200 brides for 200 brothers. There's a big problem here. So why not? Because these people killed all the men, all the women, and all the children, and all the animals. Animals are just collateral damage of this, and they burnt down. So can you see how unrestrained this attack is? This is just a bloodlust. This is just something that's, that's gone, it's like these people have gone crazy. They're just killing everybody. You kind of hear of these stories in wartime where soldiers will, they'll go into a village and they'll, they won't find any soldiers. They kill all the soldiers in the village and they've got this bloodlust and they just start, they start wiping out everybody. They just start killing innocent people and, and animals and everything. That's what's going on here. So they go way too far. There's no restraint. And they think, well, God wanted us to do this, so we're just going to do it. And they just go completely overboard and they almost wipe out the entire tribe. It's overwhelmingly devastating. Now, sin demands justice. But why is the whole tribe of the Benjamites being punished for the sin of this one town? It's because they sided with a sinner. And approving of someone's sin makes you guilty of that sin. Did you know that? Romans 1.32 Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, the sexual immorality that's spoken of in the verses before, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the Benjamites, in defending the Gibeonites' right to sin against God, lump themselves in, siding with the sinner, so that now justice demands their death as well. Can you think of an application today? There's so many people in this world including some Christians who think and who believe that the loving, Christian, forgiving thing to do, the exemplary thing to do to show how much God loves the world is to accept people in their sin and groups of people who identify by their sin and so that you will have Christian churches waving a rainbow flag outside. I've seen this with my own eyes. Churches with the LGBTQ gay pride flag flying outside the church. We're siding with you sinners. What is the point? So that you can grow your church? 
with unbelievers? Is the church for unbelievers or is the church for believers? The church is for believers. You, 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 you're siding with the sinner. You're approving what they do. And you think that you're doing God's will. And if you go and talk to the, the leaders of these places, they're not like these mean, evil people. They're like, no, we're the loving people. You, conservative Christians, are the mean, evil people because you don't have a flag outside. You don't support their rights to go and do their sin and, and be part of their pride. And they're glorying in their shame. And so people's moral compasses are off, corrupted by their sin. They think they're doing the right thing, but they're siding with the sinner instead of with God. And that's exactly what these people did. Now, of course, you get the other extreme, which is people that are like, well, now that I know that that you know, movement of people that identify themselves by their sin is wrong, that gives me license to not share the gospel with them, to not have any sympathy for them, to not show them any love, um, to not be gentle and kind when I speak to them or about them because they're wrong, and so I'm just completely against them. And then you end up being like that, that crazy um, cult in the D.C. area, Westboro Baptist Church. That's, their website is godhatesfags.com. You know, it's like they're just the most offensive unbelievers calling themselves believers that you've ever even met. And, and they'll go and protest military funerals and stuff like that. Just like the worst, vilest thing in the name of Christ. They've gone completely in the opposite direction. Yes, just because something's sin doesn't mean that you can act sinful about it and treat those people sinfully. You're missing the whole point of the gospel. And so this is what's happening here, is Israel is responding without restraint. Yes, we've determined that the Benjamites are wrong, but now look what we're doing to them. We're going to wipe them out. And so this is where we look at 2 Corinthians. So the first letter to the Corinthians that Paul writes, he's rebuking them for being too tolerant and for siding with the sinner. So then what they do is they respond and they're like, well, we're going to kick him out of the church then. And then they do, but apparently something must have happened in between where the guy's repentant and he's asking forgiveness. And what's the whole point of church discipline is that you restore them. It could be that guy or it could be another person in the church because in 1 Corinthians, Paul is defending his... Um, his standing as an apostle, and he has to defend his integrity on a number of issues because somebody was slandering him to the church, and it could be that guy. So it might not be the same guy, but the point is there was someone that the church learned this lesson about, don't be tolerant of their sin, hand them over to Satan. But now they were kind of reveling in the fact that they were treating this person so harshly and not letting them repent. So Paul in 2 Corinthians writes to correct that and say, hey, you have to have some restraint here. 2 Corinthians 5. So 1 Corinthians 5 is the sin. 2 Corinthians 5 is the remedy. Um, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive Sorrow. You see this man's pastoral heart here, the Apostle Paul, that even the person that was sinning against him or this person that was causing this trouble in the church, I don't want him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone who you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. He says, I understand the way Satan divides churches is over these issues. A person sins in the church, 
as soon as a person sins in the church and refuses to repent of it, I mean, we're all sinning, right? But we repent of it. But there's somebody's, I'm doing this and I don't care what people think and I don't, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to leave my wife and, and, you know, move in with my secretary and I still go to church and everyone has to be okay with it or whatever it is. As soon as that happens, there's going to be, there's going to be sides. There's going to be people who think that uh, the leadership is being too harsh if they discipline them. And then they're going to get upset about that and they're going to want to leave. The leaders are being too harsh. They need to be more forgiving. And, and then there's going to be people who think if the leaders don't do that, then the people are going to think, well, no, they're being too lenient. And so now we have to leave. So your sin is splitting the church, not the leaders and their decision. That's what you have to kind of explain to the church. It's like, I didn't move in with my secretary. That guy did. Why am I the one that's getting into trouble here? You know, um, you just have to trust that this is a fine line that needs to be balanced here, that even the Apostle Paul had to help the same church. You can't tolerate the sin. You have to discipline them. But if the person's repentant, you have to forgive them. And so the two mistakes people make is they side with the sinner or they go in the, the other side and they, they attack the sinner with no restraint whatsoever, with, with no compassion. And so what's, what is the solution to all of this? And the answer is authority. You need to know who your authority is. And the problem with the book of Judges is that the authority everyone's appealing to is self. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And that happens in churches too. Should the elders be more harsh? Should the elders be more lenient? Should they give us more details? Should they give us fewer details? What do you think? What do you think? I think this. We think this. It doesn't matter what we think. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. The authority is the word of God. So without God's revelation, there's no standard of morality. There's no right and wrong. Everyone's just doing what's right in their own eyes, and there's no king in Israel. And I, as I've been reading through the book of Judges these past few weeks, I, I, I keep remembering, I always, when I read the book of Judges, I always remember this novel I read in high school, The Lord of the Flies. How many of you read Lord of the Flies? I mean, that is, that is a great companion, companion book to the book of Judges. I already told you, the whole TV series 24, also, desperate times call for desperate measures. Good companion to the book of Judges. Total moral chaos. Same thing here. The, the, the Lord of the Flies are these kids that end up on an island, and there's no authority, there's no adults. And William Golding just paints this picture of this little society of kids when there's no adults, and how it just starts degenerating into this absolute moral chaos and wickedness and darkness and murder and worship of Satan who is the Lord of the Flies. And that's what you see happening in the book of, of Judges. So what are they fighting for? Do we even remember what this fight was about at this point? Wiping out all these Benjamites for looking after the Gibeonites who should have just been handed over because they killed a woman, because they weren't hospitable? None of that talks here. They're just, they're just killing each other. So application point, very simple for us. Always side with God and always respond to each other with restraint. And err on the side of grace, kindness, graciousness. But do what God says, no matter how difficult it is, knowing that he, Jesus came to bring a sword. Now, the bad news for the Benjamites is that uh, none of these tribes will let their daughters marry the Benjamite. I didn't read that part because it's, it's the first verse in the next chapter. But they all say, not only, they wipe them all out, they leave just this, this little group of men behind. And they say, and we're not going to let any of our daughters marry them. And so we'll breed them out over a generation. So that's bad news for the Benjamites. The good news is they come up with a loophole. 
And if you think that this is them doing right to fix their wrong, no, you have, then you've missed the point of judges. Next week, it's going to get even more bonkers, and it's going to involve a dance party and kidnapping and 200 brides for 200 brothers. So come back next week. Next time, because next week is the fifth Sunday fellowship, and we don't have an evening service. Come back next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder of what our lives would be like if we didn't have you as our authority, as if we didn't have your word. Here are people that don't know your word and they don't know you, and they're just trying to do the right thing, but they, they're getting further and further away from what is safe and right and pure and holy because there's no king in Israel. And Father, we live in a world where really everybody is their own king and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so I pray that you would help us to submit to you. Help us in your Holy Spirit to submit to the word that you inspired. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you lived and died for us, that we can live this life to you as obedient servants because of the work that you wrought in our hearts. And so we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.